This is an extended play episode of Where's Keisha? It's a companion to the Converge cover story on the evolving institution. In a conversation with Michael Horn, Chief Strategy Officer with the EdTech Studio Entangled, Keisha opens by asking about the health of higher ed. How is higher ed doing? Are you seeing more institutions of higher education interested in transforming their campuses? You know, it's it's funny. Higher ed is such a more uh, open and dynamic space, obviously, than K-12 uh, because it's more of a market, right? And so you have a lot of institutions that need to innovate uh, or else they actually face an existential crisis, which, which is quite different from the K-12 context, right? Where a lot of the innovation is occurring really at the classroom level or the teacher level or, or within schools, but not against schools or something like that. Uh, higher ed looks different. And so I think a lot of institutions in the last uh, couple decades have moved to create online programs. A lot of institutions are clamoring to do competency-based learning programs. And a lot of institutions are looking for new revenue sources and, and using those new programs that they create as opportunities to innovate in many cases. Yeah, and you've talked a lot about law schools and I've seen a couple of uh, uh, writing on medical schools. So where do you think the most room for growth is in this space? What's interesting is that the legal landscape outside of law schools has changed dramatically in the last couple decades with disruptive innovations, in, in many cases, really hollowing out the bottom end of the law uh, of the legal market. You know, you have legal Zoom that can do your wills for you and basic contracts and things of that nature. You don't need to get a lawyer anymore. And there's a lot of technology that has made lawyers far more productive, such that the big law firms don't need to hire as many entry uh, level lawyers each year out of law school. And as a result, the, the number of uh, lawyers graduating every single year and the number of available jobs is terribly out of whack now. And so students, of course, have started to figure that out and fewer and fewer of them are going to law schools, paying the expensive tuitions, uh, which is really threatening a lot of law school programs. And, and sort of our suggestion, suggestion has been for law schools that they need to create new growth areas, whether that's uh, non-JD uh, programs that, that focus at the intersection of uh, IP and, and, and legal questions, marketing and legal questions, things of that nature, introduce low-cost competency-based programs, and I really do think it's only a matter of time before we see uh, some school come forward with a low-cost, uh, blended, competency-based legal program that'll, you know, dramatically lower the cost uh, of a legal education and, and focus it really around the how do you be a lawyer, not just how do you think like a lawyer, and, and actually be far more effective at training lawyers, which which I think will be a huge disruptive threat to those law schools that don't start innovating now. Yeah, and I don't think law schools are alone. I think we see that in school of medicine, in school in education, uh, with the licensing uh, programs that are that are shifting a little bit. So is there a particular model or process or tool at a campus that you're most excited about uh, that you've seen and, and why are why might you be so excited about that Josh, that's, model? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, I'm not sure there's one model or tool that I'm more enthusiastic about any other. I, I've obviously been extraordinarily impressed with the work Western Governors University has done over the last 
20 years of innovation and now serving 100,000 students online, many of them training for nursing and teaching careers, uh, as well as uh, information technology. Uh, been really impressed with the way that they have used faculty and technology together in really novel combinations to give students unbelievable support, but allow them to move forward much faster and much cheaper uh, through full degree programs, while often getting uh, other credentials or certificates that are not a formal higher ed degree, if you will. Uh, so been really, really impressed with that. I'll tell you that I think the next wave of innovation is going to be in these mobile learning solutions that we're seeing starting to pop up around the market. So I'm really excited, uh, I guess, if we're thinking about professional education, uh, Smartly uh, is a mobile uh, mobile app that offers a free MBA, uh, and, and the way they make money is by placing you into uh, jobs, and they get paid by the employer, not by the student. And the profile of students that they're attracting is astounding. It's like the you know the GMAT score and GPA of an MIT Sloan MBA student, and it's a free program on your mobile phone. The learning design is amazing. Uh, it's incredibly engaging and, and really uh, very active experience where a student is responding to a question every six or seven seconds. F full disclosure, I am on their advisory board because I, so, I was just so blown away by it. And I think it's just a matter of time before we see higher ed institutions start to use some of these mobile platforms. Duolingo to learn languages is another one that I think is really good. Uh, I think we're going to start to see more of that in the coming uh, years and and it'll, and it'll be really interesting. You know, I I agree. I um, however asked a group of uh, of higher ed uh, dignitaries, provosts, etc., presidents, if they felt their campuses would always be residential campuses, or if they would have to think about uh, their campuses being more virtual and mobile. And hands down, they were like, we will always have residential campuses. This is, that is academia. So has messaging changed for disruption in higher education? And if it hasn't, how can we, how can we change it? Yeah, great, great question. You know, so I'm going to tell you two split personality answers on this. Uh, and hopefully you'll follow me, but, uh, or, or, or it'll make sense at the end of it, but, um, or I'll do my best. So on the one hand, I think there are many universities and colleges that are deluding themselves if they don't think the majority of their students will be lear learning in some sort of online or blended format in the future, right? 30% uh, of master's degrees today are fully online. Uh, we know that at least a third of students are taking at least one fully online course as part of their undergraduate uh, experience. Uh, just the growth of online students has been amazing, even as there's been, I think, 12 straight semesters of declining higher ed enrollment overall, uh, online continues to creep up year over year over year, and it's not growing as fast as it was, but it's continuing to grow. So I think for many institutions, they're sort of deluding themselves that they don't think online will be a significant part of their future. And, and if it's not, you know, they may be one of those institutions that, uh, might not be around. Now, by the same token, we're actually doing, my, my next book uh, is called Choosing College, or, or that's the working title. And we did our jobs to be done research methodology there, where we've talked to 
several hundred students about their college choosing experience. And, and basically the notion of job to be done is that people don't hire products or services for their own sake, nor do they conform to the average demographic of how they're supposed to act. They just find themselves in circumstances or situations trying to make progress. And if you can understand what progress they're trying to make and what the circumstance really is and the constraints, then you can help understand what are the experiences that they really need to, to have to get something done in their lives and, and, and make that progress. And as we've dug into this, several hundred interviews, as I said, of students and literally creating documentaries of how they chose college, uh, what we found is one of the jobs if, um, that people hire college to do is to help them have their ideal college experience. <laughs> so it sort of folds back on itself uh, and it's almost like it's so ingrained in American society that for a certain percentage of us, the American dream is synonymous with having that grassy green quad and prestigious campus and et cetera, et cetera. And so given the depth of passion and, and, and uh, uh, significance of that particular job in our, in our research, my takeaway is that for many students, they're going to continue to have a residential college experience and that colleges, uh, there are you know, several hundred colleges, maybe more, uh, that will continue to do just fine as largely residential campuses. Are people seeing in higher ed that there is this gap between what students perceive the experience should be? Professors, you know, th their incentives are clear in many cases, but it's often around research, right, and, and breaking new ground. And sometimes that aligns very well with a certain subset of students and what they're interested in. But for a lot of students, that, that's not what they're trying to get out of the experience. And so there is a misalignment uh, between those two groups in many cases. You know, what are the biggest technology challenges facing higher ed IT? And how do you think institutions should be addressing those challenges? Yeah, so, uh, so, so well, stepping back, I guess, in terms of higher ed addressing the challenges, I, I just want to make sure I understand your question, actually. So higher ed addressing the challenges of students being digitally ready or the faculty? Both. Both. Okay, there we go. Both. Yeah, yes. it's a big question. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, for students, in some ways, it's easier to think about because the creation of short programs that are aligned to industry credentials and needs, right, is it's complicated to do, uh, and it's often hard within a faculty that may be removed from those industries. There's a great article about a Dartmouth professor uh, who left actually Dartmouth for a year to work as an intern uh, in Google and then went back to teaching at Dartmouth, which was enormously helpful for him. He realized that the theoretical constructs of the computer science major in which he, uh, you know, where he's a faculty member were incredibly helpful but a lot of the problems and things around big data and specific applications of the course were actually very out of date. And so sitting inside of a Google and learning what are the types of problems they're grappling with was enormously helpful for him to revise uh, the course. And so in some ways, uh, having those connections with industry for faculty is incredibly important. Uh, to be constantly revising and, and a lot of the practices a western governor's university or southern new hampshire does where they have business panels right that are informing the creation of courses and majors and programs i, I think is a really important step to keep those things in in, in 
in connection with each other. On the faculty side, uh, I think it can be more challenging because uh, it depends on the university, obviously. There's certain places that really incentivize great teaching and alignment of teaching to what students will need when they, when, when they leave an institution. And, and those places, I think, are set up for uh, professors to try to stay on top of their craft. I think uh, one really important step could be for institutions to step back and think through what are the incentives we're, we're, and what are we, what's our purpose, right? Are, is, is tenure mostly about research or are there better ways to be thinking about our outcomes around students' life success? And, and that doesn't just mean a job, right? It could mean uh, civic participation, things of that nature as well. But get very clear about what are the outcomes you think students uh, ought to leave your institution with, and then how would you best align toward that, both in the teaching and learning, uh, and then training and developing the faculty members. And I, I think technology won't be trained uh, in, as an end unto itself, but as a means toward that end. And, and I think it will fall more naturally if we start the conversation around outcomes and what do we hope our students are able to achieve. Tell me, what are you most excited about in 2018? I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic about the personalization that's increasingly occurring in K-12 uh, education. And I, for example, uh, you know, Summit Learning, right, which has a free platform now that any school can use for any subject in middle and high school with lots of content and so forth to move to a personalized learning model with deep projects and things of that nature. And I confess I was skeptical that any district could just take that off the shelf and, and, and do it because, gosh, it, you know, it took Summit several years of a lot of work to make it, make it, make it work in their context. Uh, and I went to four or five schools last year in the New England area, so a good deal away from California where Summit is. And I was just, you know, 75, 80% of those schools, I was just blown away with what I saw, uh, with the way the teachers were implementing it, the way they were talking about what they were doing, the way students were talking about it. I, I, I was just blown away and it, it gave me a real sense of optimism for, you know, all the problems in policy and incentives and so forth, teachers and students together can do some really cool things. And, and I think deep down at a gut level, despite all the craziness around buzzword bingo in education, they get what the value of personalization could do for students, right? To, to give students the right experience at the right time, to keep them engaged and motivated and make learning more efficient and more meaningful. What are you seeing today yeah. that is going to be that next gen thing? It's a good question. I don't know that I, I, you know, from my perspective, I think what it'll be is more honing blended learning uh, to, to uh, get more and more toward that personalization and competency-based aspects of it that, that, that we're so excited about, right? I, I'm not excited about blended learning for its own sake, but because it unlocks the ability to personalize it at scale, because it unlocks the ability uh, for mastery-based learning at scale. And I think we'll see increasing number of teachers as they start to blend or flip their classroom, you know, which is a type of blended learning, they'll start to ask questions, right? Why am I having the student move on when they really haven't understood or mastered this foundational concept that is going to hurt them in the future? Why am I making the student 
do uh, 50 problems on double digit addition when they've clearly mastered this and shown that they can do multiplication? <laughs> why am I having them drill, right? Uh, why am I not letting the student who's already mastered this set of concepts start to apply it in a more real world context around a deep project that connects to the community in some way? And as they ask those questions, I think we will advance this field forward in some pretty exciting ways. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We will certainly be back in touch with you in the very near future. Would love it. Thank you. Appreciate it, my friend. There's more Keisha and more of what you need to know about K-12 and higher ed at centerdigitaled.com.